Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where I am interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. We are going to be talking about all things compounding pharmacy, one of the most fundamental tools in the Functional Medicine Clinician's Toolkit with Michelle Violi. Let me tell you about Michelle. She's a licensed pharmacist with a passion for bioidentical hormone health. She received her PharmD degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Pharmacy. At Women's International Pharmacy, she's the dispensing pharmacist's manager where she's responsible for managing a team of pharmacists in two locations, participates on the regulatory team to maintain state licenses, and she's an active contributor to Women's International uh, Education Resources. And incidentally, there's a lot of those educational resources, and in our show notes, you will see links to, um, to many of them. Michelle is a member of International Academy of Compounding Pharmacists and Pharmacy Society of Wisconsin, and she holds 17 state licenses. That's pretty impressive, Michelle. Uh, she's committed to the future of compounding pharmacy and as a pharmacy student, she preceptored with both the University of Wisconsin School of Pharmacy and Concordia University School of Pharmacy. Michelle, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you, Dr. Fitzgerald. Thank you for having me. It's really great to have you on. I just, you know, I haven't, you're the first compounding pharmacist's brain that I've gotten to pick on New Frontiers. I'm pretty, I'm excited about it given, you know, as I said in the introduction, you play such a fundamental role for us in functional slash integrative medicine. Mm -hmm. um, we were just talking beforehand. In fact, you just actually did a really lovely teach-in to the clinicians with us in our clinical immersion program. Um, but we, there, there's, you've been in the crosshairs of the FDA. And I, as I was just telling you, I posted something recently in support of compounding pharmacies on our social media. And, but I see these things periodically you know, assault my inbox where the FDA is going after compounding pharmacies. And I, and I always get sort of an anxious pit in my stomach because you're such an important part of what we do. So what's, what's going on? Are, we, are compounding pharmacies safe? Like what do we need to do to support you? Just color this in for, for us. Sure, absolutely. So this story really goes back to the beginning of time. Um, and Women's International has been a part of it since then. Back in the 90s, there was actually a court case that went to the Supreme Court in which um, the, the compounding legislation federally was, was struck down. And it all just kind of stayed under the, under the rug for, for a while uh, and really came to a head again in 2013. And I, I think probably the reason for that was, was based on the New England Compounding Center yeah. tragedy, uh, which I think a lot of people are probably familiar with. Uh, the unfortunate thing there was that one bad actor um, really spoiled the waters for, for many of us in terms of, of reputation and, and, you know, what we do for our patients. Uh, this particular pharmacy was acting as a manufacturer. They were not acting as a pharmacy, and they were distributing uh, medications that, that they claimed to be sterile throughout mm -hmm. the United States. And unfortunately, what happened is these medications were not sterile. Uh, they harmed many, many people. Uh, some people died. And um, that, that was a very, very tragic, unfortunate event. Uh, 
I think what people are not aware of regarding that situation is that there were laws in place in the state where they were practicing, uh, where the, the state board and, and the, the uh, powers that be there could have addressed and uh, stopped this from happening. However, uh, they did not. And so the FDA and the federal government decided that they needed to get involved. And so in 2013, uh, they passed the DQSA, uh, the Drug Quality and Security Act. And uh, basically, that brought back all of those regulations that were struck down back in the 90s. And so you can imagine a, a lot of those were, were outdated. Um, mm. And, you know, that, that's been problematic. Uh, however, the biggest problem through all of this is that Congress established these laws and said, this is now what compounding pharmacies have to do. And we said, okay. Uh, however, the FDA has chosen not to follow Congress's uh, word. They, they have continued to overstep. Uh, and even Congress has sent a, a number of, of notices to them informing them to, you know, to back down with regard to compounding pharmacy. Um. And currently, um, there's actually a bill uh, right now in Congress. It's H.R. 1959. It's called the Preserving Patient Access to Compounded Medications Act. And this particular act would address a number of these uh, situations where FDA is, is choosing to overstep. And so we're, we're hoping that everybody is, is willing to support it. When you look at it, it's, it's very reasonable. It's just right. allowing compounders to practice and to serve our, our patients and practitioners as as we always have in, in a safe manner. So yeah. uh, that, that, in a nutshell, is, is kind of what's going on. And how can we support this legislation? I know that I posted, but is there a website you want us to, to go to? I mean, do you need voices? Does something need to be signed? Yeah. Is there donations? I mean, where, what, what can sure. we do? Sure. Well, the best thing that we can do is to contact our legislators. Okay. Uh, contact your, right now it's in the House. So you'd want to contact uh, your representatives, but eventually, uh, you know, an equal measure would have to be taken in the Senate. And so um, just the, the more voices that our, that our Congress people hear, uh, the more they'll realize that this is important. And say the, say the um, legislation again, the name of that that's going through so we know exactly what to say. Sure, of course. So the, the bill is numbered H.R. 1959. And the name of it is the Preserving Patient Access to Compounded Medications Act. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for that. All right, so I'm going to ask you another question, and I know maybe this is not appropriate for you to answer, but does the, I mean, the FDA, does, has the FDA been sort of unduly lobbied by pharma? I mean, is there, is there, some, is there some other agenda going on, or is that for, uh, is that for another yeah. day? <laughs> Yeah, right. I know it, it, it's all it's it's a little hard to say. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, yeah, certainly, big pharma has deep pockets, um, but yeah. uh, you know, I think the focus needs to be on making sure that the laws are enforceable and um, are followed by you know both both sides of the of the fence here. So. Uh, yeah, so our biggest concern is just making sure that, that we can follow the laws that have been put in place and that, uh, that you know, the FDA doesn't uh, insist on measures that, are, that aren't necessary. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and you tend to be, you guys are, farm, compounding pharmacies are smaller. And that's actually one of the really lovely things about 
compounding pharmacies is that you're available and you have this strong commitment to education and clinicians, I think, and patients alike can kind of give you a buzz and actually reach a person. And, you know, there's a lot of very important qualities that, that we just want to keep alive um, and going. So let's just, since we're, since we're on this, and the other piece, one of the things you actually mentioned at our teach-in this morning was um, that, so this one 2013 um, pharmacy, I think they were either in Massachusetts or Rhode Island, but next door to me, I'm in Connecticut, you know, really, really you know, brought a, some, some bad attention, some really unfortunate attention. But generally speaking, you guys are hold, held to extremely high standards. Yes, yes, we are. Um, you know, like I mentioned, we're following federal laws. We've always been held to our state laws. Um, as I mentioned this morning, pharmacy is one of the most highly regulated professions in the U.S., and so we have scores of, of laws to follow. Uh, we're, we're held to the standards established by USP, the United States Pharmacopeia, uh, which is a nonprofit organization that establishes standards for, for pharmacy in general and, and healthcare, um, but there are specific standards that compounding pharmacies need to follow. And then, of course, there's the PCAB, or the Pharmacy Compounding Accreditation Board accreditation process that a pharmacy, a compounding pharmacy, can undergo, uh, you know, to, to really show that they're they're going that extra mile. Ah, okay. Well, then that leads me. I, we're gonna. I'm, I promise everybody we will jump into bioidenticals here in just a second. But then, um, so how? What do we want to think about when we're picking? When we're looking for? If we're a clinician kind of settling into the compounding pharmacy we're going to work with or, you know, a patient, you know, where we want to get our product from, how do we, how do we pick a good compounding pharmacy? Sure, sure. So the PCAB accreditation, I think, is a good thing to look for. Um, in order to become PCAB accredited, uh, the pharmacy has to undergo an inspection. Uh, we, we share all of our policies and procedures, our risk management program. Um, and this is a process that occurs every three years. So it's not like once you're accredited, you know, you, you rest on those laurels. Uh, this is something that you have to keep up and maintain. And so if a pharmacy is PCAB accredited, that, that's an impressive thing. Um, also, just uh, looking, I think, at the experience that the pharmacy has. Mm, certainly, really. pharmacies that, that have been doing this for a while uh, have practices and, and have, have really perfected, you know, what they're doing. And so I, I think that that's another good thing to look at. Looking at pharmacies that specialize, uh, the pharmacy that I work at, our, our focus is bioidentical hormones, and that's really all we do. Yes. Uh, that's really our, our area of focus, and, and we're really good at it. And so I think a pharmacy that, that is focused like that is, is uh, you know, a good thing. Yeah, and you've been... I mean, you, you, you must be one of the longest bioidentical compounding pharmacies out there. I mean, you've been around for decades, like 1985. Yeah, over 30 years at this yeah. point. Yeah. yeah, you're one of the originals, absolutely. Yeah. That's pretty neat. I'm kind of curious if, I mean, how did, what, what's your, just nutshell your early story, like how you, you know, how your founder ended up jumping into this? Sure, absolutely. So uh, Wally Simons is our is our uh, founder. He started the the pharmacy uh, as a pharmacist and pharmacy compounding for a PMS clinic clinic that opened here in oh, town. And uh, so yeah, so they started with a lot of progesterone, and wow. then the PMS clinic didn't make it, but the the pharmacy did. And so uh, 
we just kept branching out into different hormones and, and different areas and different dosage forms. And then I think it was about 20 years ago, he decided to retire to Arizona. And um, in his retirement, he actually started our second branch out there. So <laughs> we have one in, <laughs> one in Madison, Wisconsin, and, and then another outside of Phoenix, Arizona in Youngstown. Uh, we do have a pet pharmacy out there as, as well at that branch. So um, yes, that, that is kind of the, the story of, of how we, we came about. Now, that's a pretty neat story. Wow, a PMS clinic. Um, all right, so then let's just talk about why we would want to go compounding. Why are you such an essential tool for us clinicians? Yeah, so I, my perspective is that each person is an individual, and it is so important to look at each person and figure out what is going on with them uh, in terms of, of what they need uh, for, for medications and, and lifestyle changes and everything. And so um, with compounded medications, it is possible to do that. We are able to make minute changes to any dose that, that a patient may need. Uh, I think everybody's familiar with going to the retail setting and uh, the practitioner may call in a, a prescription for an antibiotic or a blood pressure medication and have four or five dose, doses to, to choose from. Whereas with a compounding pharmacy, you, you can choose any dose and a wide variety of dosage forms as well. And so it's really possible to, to tailor the therapy to the patient uh, and, and make sure that it's something that they're going to be able to tolerate and be able to use. Right, right. And in sort of infinite combinations, um, certainly when we look at what's, what we can get in the bioidentical landscape, it's limited, you know, that in the, from, from a traditional pharmacy. It's, and they're always so high dose, like if we're going to go Prometrium or something of that nature. And the de routes of delivery, of course, are very limited, usually oral. Um, exactly. Exactly, right. yes. I mean, if somebody needs progesterone, currently they can use a 100 or a 200 milligram capsule or yes. a vaginal gel that's at 40 or 80 milligrams, I think. So, I mean, it's just very, very limited uh, right. what you can get commercially. Right, right. And many of our patients need to start at much, much more conservative doses. The other interesting thing you mentioned this morning I enjoyed hearing about is the variety of um, mediums of, if you're doing a topical, the, the variety of, of, of options that you have there. And you talked about you know, um, one of the more sensitive individuals you guys are, are, well, you mentioned, I think you were just mentioning in general, but uh, using olive oil as the mm -hmm. delivery oil and no preservatives at all. Right, right. Yes, we work with many, many people that are very chemically sensitive. And of course, when somebody is chemically sensitive, you don't always know exactly what they're chemically sensitive to. And so we do have a number of different topical forms that, that people can, can try, mm -hmm. uh, maybe starting with one cream, and if that doesn't work, trying another cream. For people that are, that are very, very sensitive and just really can't tolerate anything, it's possible for them to use the, the hormones in a drop form. And so that's basically a suspension of the drop in oil, uh, we generally use olive oil, but we do have other oils if, if the patient would be sensitive to olive oil. And then they would just shake that up each time they use it and apply the, the prescribed number of drops to either their skin or their uh, under their tongue or, or just even swallow it um, as prescribed by their practitioner. So what are the most common uses of, actually, before we get into the most common uses of bioidentical, just give me the 
little bit of a background of you know bioidentical versus synthetic and and why we all want bioidentical sure so bioidentical hormones what that means is that the molecule that the hormone molecule is identical to what is produced by the body so if you are using a bioidentical progesterone cream the molecule of progesterone in that cream is identical to the molecule of progesterone produced by the ovaries or the uh, from the adrenal hormones in the body. And that's very important because uh, on the other hand, you have synthetic or what are termed synthetic hormones. And these molecules have been slightly changed from what is produced by the body, um, either to patent them or to make them last longer in the body or, or for a variety of reasons. Uh, but I think it's important to note that the receptor site for these hormones is very specific. Yeah. And so if you're trying to have a molecule that's not exactly what that receptor site wants to, to connect with, if you're trying to plug that into that receptor site, it's not going to, to bind as well as the bioidentical hormone would. And that can, that can cause side effects, and, and that can make it so that that molecule doesn't work like the bioidentical molecule does in the body. Or make it actually less safe. Right, right, yes. Yeah, I mentioned the, the WHI study this morning when I spoke, and in that situation, they saw that the medroxyprogesterone acetate, the synthetic progestin used in the study, actually was associated with an increased risk of breast cancer, whereas the estrogen alone was not. Right, and um, so just on that topic, so that's the Women's Health Initiative study, that's the um, extremely famous, when did that one, when did it come out, 27,000 women? Right, well, you know, it, it had been going on for a while, but it was actually stopped in 2002 when they were seeing this, this increased risk of breast cancer, and they decided at that point it was no longer safe to continue with it. But you have since, or we, you know, I know, you, again, you were talking about it this morning, but it, and we can make these citations available to folks. Uh, there's, there's some evidence that natural bioidentical progesterone is, is good. It's, 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 it's safe. Right. Yeah, there are other studies, although unfortunately not as many as we would hope, uh, because as I mentioned before, um, one of the reasons you change the molecule is to allow you to patent it. And yes. so uh, we don't see as many bioidentical hormones marketed commercially uh, for that reason. The, the, the patent process is a little different and, and more difficult. And so um, there aren't a lot of studies uh, on the bioidentical hormones. There are some. And uh, certainly the ones that we're seeing on the, the bioidentical progesterone show that it, it's significantly different than the synthetic progestin in terms of a variety of different uh, things that you would expect from the progestin. Okay. Can you can you actually speak to those since you're bringing it up now? Just give us a give us a little bit of a high level view, and then maybe later, if you can uh, just get this get a couple citations uh, to us, that would be great, and we'll just put them in our show notes. Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess at this point, you know, I, I would just um, kind of leave it at that. Uh, you know, I, I can certainly uh, bring together some of those studies, but at this point, I you know, I guess I, I can't speak specifically about one. Or another. Okay. Okay. So in general, the trend is that it appears to the bioidentical progesterone is safer. What about what about bioidentical estrogens? Right. So uh, with that, um, the the bioidentical estrogen that's used most often commercially is estradiol, 
And uh, there have been studies uh, where the topical estradiol was compared to the oral estrogen used, uh, most often Premarin or, or synthetic estrogen. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, I'm not sure I would be able to sp cite specific studies, but I know that uh, a couple of years ago, there was a group that, that combined the studies that had occurred since early on in, in the 2000s and looked at all of them and found that there was less clot risk with the estrogens that were used topically as opposed to the estrogens that were taken by mouth. And I, I think it's interesting to point out there that the estrogens used topically were estradiol. It was bioidentical as opposed to perhaps the estrogens used by mouth where there are many more synthetic estrogens or non-bioidentical estrogens used. Yeah, that is interesting. Are most, so are most, um, I, I, most of the bioidentical um, estrogen progesterone formulas, individual or together, you're delivering topically, I'm assuming. You mean, what do we compound most often? Yeah, yes, what do you compound most often? Sure. So I, I would say it's, it's pretty much half and half. We, we see uh, the, the hormones used individually at first when somebody is trying to find the right dose. Uh, perhaps they would have a, a separate estrogen cream and a separate progesterone cream, and they might titrate that a little bit to, to meet their symptom needs. And then once they find that dose, then it's possible to combine that. And of course, it's easier to, to use a combined cream as opposed to having to measure out two separate creams. Mm -hmm. Sure. And generally speaking, it, as your, your deliver, your most, would you say most prescriptions are topical or is there a time when oral might be used of one or the other or together? Yeah, I, I don't think that I would say the majority would be topical. Um, we see a fair amount of sublingual as well and even uh, oral. The thing about the capsules that we make here, we suspend the hormone in oil inside the capsules. And there was a study um, years ago now, but show, it showed that uh, the oil-based format actually allows the hormone to be absorbed into the lymphatic system, oh, uh, which bypasses the liver, yeah, as opposed huh. to the, um, you know, going directly into the stomach and then going directly to the, to the liver where it's broken down by the first path metabolism. Um, and it's thought that, you know, there, there's some um, activation or, or stimulation of those clotting factors when, when uh, something is going directly to the liver full force like that. And so we, we do have a number of, of patients and practitioners that stick with the, the capsule form because, because it is in oil. Interesting. Wow. So it might actually bypass first pass metabolism. Right, at least to some degree. Mm -hmm. And I know for progesterone, it's actually, you know, there's all this secondary or really, in some cases, primary benefit, you know, beyond just um, helping with, you know, classic hormonal symptoms. It's an anxiolytic, it's, you know, protective, it might have some antioxidants pro properties. What, like, speak about that. Sure, yeah. So, Progesterone, and I'm sure as, as your listeners know, as a woman is progressing into perimenopause, it's usually the progesterone levels that fall first um, because a woman misses ovulation, the corpus luteum doesn't form. Um, and so usually those symptoms of perimenopause tend to be um, difficulty sleeping, anxiety, irritability, 
uh, water retention, a lot of those things that you can draw back to progesterone deficiency. Um, during perimenopause, oftentimes it's a time of estrogen dominance. And so the estrogen levels may not be exceptionally high, and, and maybe they're even a little bit low, but when compared to the, to the balancing progesterone aspect, uh, the, the estrogen is dominant. And so when I think of progesterone symptoms, I, I tend to think of uh, PMS or, or perimenopausal type symptoms. Progesterone tends to be the, the calming, soothing, relaxing hormone uh, to balance estrogen's more, more stimulatory, energizing properties. And so, right, th those would be the things that I would expect from progesterone. And that might be a re to achieve some of those benefits, you would need to go orally versus topically or what? Sure. So progesterone actually is, when it's, when it's metabolized um, by mouth, it is broken down and some of those metabolites cause some drowsiness. And so if somebody is having difficulty sleeping, I would suggest going with an oral dosage form relatively close to bedtime. And that may actually help somebody fall asleep as opposed to just maintaining sleep like a, a cream dosage form may do. Now, do you guys, do, so do you do um, the progesterone in that oil-based capsule that you were just talking about? Was that how you would deliver it or where it's absorbed into the lymphatics or would you, you want those secondary metabolites? So do you want first pass metabolism? Right. Well, yeah. So all that we do here are the hormones in oil inside okay. the capsule. We actually don't do any, um, any dry powder tablets or capsules. And right. So as I was saying, the majority of it is, is thought to go through the lymphatic system uh, and, and bypass the first pass. But you are still sending that through the digestive system. And so it's going to have a different uh, metabolism process than, than something going through the skin. The, the enzyme systems are, are going to be different. Yeah, that's, a, that's interesting. Okay, so you're still getting the benefits. And um, all right, like, so, so topically, there's a lot of different ideas around where to apply it, you know, the mucosa versus skin, wrists versus, say, inner thigh, rotating spots. What, what, what do you think? Michelle, do you have any, do you, does, does W Women's um, International have any kind of position on that or do they defer to the clinician or what, what are your comments? Yes, good question. We actually tend to defer to the, the physician on that or the, or the prescriber, I should say, uh, the practitioner. And um, we, what I can say though, is that we've seen it used pretty much everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, thin skin, fatty tissue. The only place that we really wouldn't want to see, say, estrogen used is anywhere that it may make its way into the breast tissue. So uh, one prescription I think recommended to the, the sides of the the sides of the, the chest. And um, I, I did call and kind of ask about that because that's pretty close to the breast tissue. But uh, yeah, in general, I would say um, thin skinned areas to, to help with absorption. You wouldn't want to put it somewhere that's very rough or um, doesn't have a good absorption capability. Uh, but as far as whether thin-skinned or, or fatty tissue, I, I don't think that it seems to matter very much. We, we've seen people have success either way. Okay. All right. I remember a friend of mine once suggested that you would get almost like a sustained release if it accumulated in the fatty tissue. That's interesting. I, 
as the hormones are produced by your own body, they're, they're moving through all of the tissues and there is no reason that you should have any kind of an accumulation. If, if you're having an accumulation, then that would indicate that the dose is too high for you. So yeah. I, I hadn't heard or even really run into <laughs> Okay. Yeah, this was when this was during my residency. I just it, it just stuck out in 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 mind because we were always you know debating: Do you rotate? Do you go to thin skin? Do you go to different sites? Do you stay in the same site? I mean, it's sort of the perennial conversation for people prescribing bioidentical. I wish I could give you a definitive answer. I, no. I do not. <laughs> no problem. It's, it's a good answer. I probably, if I were, if I were you, I would probably just, yeah, stay out of it um, <laughs> and make the hormones. What about muco using, you know, mucosal delivery? Oh, so uh, say vaginal or, mm -hmm. or, um, or even inside the, the mouth or. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So inside the mouth is going to be similar to like a sublingual uh, sublingual administration where uh, technically it, it should bypass the first pass through the liver as well, uh, the, the sublingual route does. However, of course, if somebody is swallowing something that doesn't have that oil buffer, uh, they're, they're still going to have some, some uh, oral type effect in, in that respect. Uh, with regard to administering vaginally, we do see the hormones used vaginally, but mostly for treating that area specifically or trying to, to, to relieve symptoms uh, in that area. I, I do know that some practitioners tend to use uh, the, the vaginal route for systemic effect, and, and I don't have a lot of experience with that. Okay. Okay. Uh, just actually, you know, as we're talking about this, it's occurring to me there are a number of um, either newly minted clinicians or um, seasoned physicians transitioning into functional medicine that listen to our podcast. It's, as far as actually learning nuts and bolts of prescribing uh, bioidentical, do you, I, I know that you've got some nice resources on your site. Is that something that you can connect us with uh, or do you have any thoughts on uh, where to learn uh, how to do this? Absolutely, yes. Uh, the Women's International Pharmacy is very committed to uh, education, in addition to, of course, compounding the, the medications. Our website has a, a lot of information on it. And in fact, uh, through our website, you're able to sign up for our newsletter. We do put out an e-newsletter on a monthly basis with some uh, topic involving hormones. And I, I think that that's a great way to get familiar with, with the hormones and, and what you might use them for and, and whatnot, uh, just kind of a nice little monthly uh, reminder and, and update there. Uh, additionally, Women's International has uh, pharmacists that have been on staff for, for a, a long time. Our, our cumulative knowledge here is, is very high, and so we would invite any practitioner to just give us a call. We're, we're happy to uh, brainstorm or, you know, if you just want to pick our brain or if you have a patient that you're that you're looking at and you're thinking, okay, well, I want to accomplish this, but, but what dosing should I start with? Um, we, we are more than happy to, to help out in that respect. Okay, that's great to hear. Uh, and again, we'll just put your contact information up on, our, up on our site so folks can access it there. What about patients, if they've got questions on, their, on what they're doing? Can they, can they yeah. reach out to you as well? They sure can. And in fact, a lot of times we do end up speaking with the patient first where they'll call and say, my, my 
best friend from book club is using your, your hormones. Uh, tell me about what I need to do to, to start this. She's feeling and looking great. And so, um, yes, oftentimes we do, uh, we do speak with patients and we do have patient level information as well that, that we're able to, to uh, provide to them. Um, and so, yes, sometimes patients bring that back to their practitioners and, and that's kind of how the relationship starts. Okay, good, good. What about, um, well, I want to ask you about testosterone, and I also want to, I want to talk to you, well, I actually have a handful of other hormone-related questions, but I'm curious, too, about testing. I mean, you know, where, what do you think about testing? I mean, are you re- recommending that anyone using bioidentical get sort of baseline and follow-up? Are you recommending a t- particular form of test, urine, urine with metabolites, blood, et cetera? What, what, I mean, what, what do you think about that? Yes, testing. That's a big issue, um, or a big topic, I should say. And I mm-hmm. think maybe the, the one that has changed the most throughout the years that I've, that I've been here at Women's International Pharmacy. I've, I've been here for almost 20 years. Wow. And when we started, it was all blood testing and, and uh, 24-hour urine testing. And then saliva testing became more popular. And then practitioners were starting to see that if their patients were using topical dosage forms, that the saliva test results weren't really pairing with what they were seeing for symptoms. Uh, and now I know that there's, there's a blood spot test that's available. However, the, the research supporting that and the results there is, is a little bit new and, and a little bit uncertain. So uh, I guess my, the, my baseline comment on, on testing is the, the patient's symptoms are the most important. And so while it might be helpful to get a baseline test just to see if something is way out of whack, if you're working with a postmenopausal woman, you can likely assume that their estrogen and progesterone levels are low. Yeah. Uh, and then based on that, uh, starting with an average dose and looking at their symptoms, uh, it's, it's really important to not get too wrapped up in the testing, I think. It, it's a useful tool, but we often have patients or practitioners uh, that do a very thorough test on, on the patient or the, or the patient brings this to us and say, what dose do I need? Look at my test. And, and the answer is, well, how are you feeling? Yes. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so as far as testing, I, I guess what I would say is that it can be a useful tool, uh, but I think it can be easy to get wrapped up in it and think that that's going to give you the, the final answer, and, and it really doesn't. Yeah, right, right. It, all, it, it does ultimately come back to how our patients are feeling. I would say that one of the best uses for testing, in my experience and opinion, would be looking at metabolites and making sure they're, you know, clearing estrogens as cleanly as possible. Yeah, um, yep, that makes sense. I, I think that's a great idea, and, you know, perhaps considering some DIM or I3C or, you know, if you're seeing those, those uh, carcinogenic metabolites elevated. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you, testosterone, what are your, I'm, I'm sure that you're compounding up a whole lot of it and um, just speak about that and, and, and its role in, in women's health and, you know, what, how, you're, how you're preparing that, how you're compounding testosterone commonly. Sure, sure. So most often uh, for, for women, uh, we do compound for men as well, and, and we do compound a fair amount of, of topical testosterone for men. For women, I would say that we see topical and oral capsules used most often. Uh, trying to obtain just a, a consistent blood level with a consistent dose uh, using 
a certain amount per day uh, is is really something that that we're used to seeing. We see dosing uh, anywhere from the, the, it's very interesting. The dosing range is, is quite wide for women, and I, I think that that probably has something to do with with varied absorption capabilities. Mm. Uh, but we see anywhere from maybe a quarter of a milligram up to 10 milligrams a day on average. Uh, and so that, I mean, that's a really big, really wow. big range. Um, also, we see testosterone used kind of on a PRN basis in a vaginal cream uh, to be used genitally prior to sexual activity. We, we see patients using it that way. And also maybe combining a little bit in with a vaginal cream to help uh, with with the muscles in that area, mm -hmm. um, perhaps thinking in terms of urinary symptoms or um, prolapse. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think that it, that can be extremely useful. Um, you know, you you just mentioned absorption, and you know, again, <laughs> sorry, folks, I keep harkening back to the teaching that we had. You mentioned, uh, well, I've got two questions on absorption. I don't want to forget about one is that there that it's very your in your experience, it's extremely variable. So, are there any conditions that you're more likely to see absorption issues, both orally and topically? Like what? you know, what, what would you say about that? And then I also want to just highlight the fact that you mentioned absorption and hypothyroidism on our teaching. Mm -hmm. I just want you to kind of talk about that again. So sort of big picture uh, when we're concerned about absorption and then hypothyroidism. Absolutely. Yes. So uh, let's start with oral. Uh, so the big topic of the, of the week, I guess, or of the, of the year, is, is the microflora and the microbiome in the, in the gut and making sure that that's healthy, making sure the gut is healthy as, as kind of the seat of our immune system, um, making sure that, that we're not experiencing a leaky gut situation, which of course leads to all kinds of inflammation and, and uh, allergic type responses. And if somebody doesn't have a healthy gut, go figure, they're, they're not going to absorb things orally very well, uh, nutrients from their food, but also oral medications yes. and, and hormones as well. So if somebody is really struggling with, with a gut dysbiosis or, um, you know, gut health, I would recommend going toward the topical route or, or even uh, sublingual or, or vaginal uh, suppositories, but avoiding the, the oral route. And then with regard to topical absorption, as you mentioned, there are various things that can affect the absorption of things through the skin. Uh, just having rough, dry skin is, is going to make the, the skin less likely to take up the, the hormones. And one way that that can happen is if somebody is dealing with hypothyroidism. Uh, of course, dry skin is, is a symptom of, of hypothyroidism. Uh, they're also dealing with the mixed edema of the, of the tissues. And yeah. just in general, I, I would say that if I'm working with somebody that has hypothyroidism, um, it doesn't seem like their their topical absorption is is as good. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So if so, hypothyroidism, you know, or Hashimoto, autoimmune hypo, hypothyroidism often comes with um, you know gut issues as well. We see the gut involvement. So in those cases, you might just deliver it, you know, sublingually or or intravaginally. That's possible, or I guess I would just try and see what works best for them. 
as they're using the hormones, the hope is that they're also addressing their health, their health yes, in other ways as well. That's right. And so, right, right. So if, if the hormones are just one part of the picture, hopefully as their gut becomes healthier, perhaps they'll absorb better and uh, they'll, they'll experience more benefit from the hormones. Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. Um, all right. What, what else? You know, what are the, some of the other common uses of bioidentical? besides testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone? Sure. Yeah, so I, I think it's important to note that when people think of hormones, oftentimes they think, oh, menopausal women, they need hormones. They, they're not making them anymore. But I think that it's good to consider all ages and all situations where hormones may be important. Uh, we start sometimes in, in very young children with, with vaginal or labial adhesions, um, certainly PMS, we, we see women using, using the hormones uh, to, to address that. Um, moving onward, we, you know, certainly menopause and whatnot, but there are different conditions throughout, um, branching out into like the luteal phase defect situation uh, in, in fertility, uh, certainly for men dealing with andropause. Uh, I think it is just important to consider that when you're looking at a condition, perhaps there's a hormonal component. Right. Yes, I would say that that's a good chance. <laughs> that's a good chance. I mean, just thinking about, you know, again, you were, we were, we were discussing, you know, HPA imbalances, you know, the classic adrenal fatigue t t today. I mean, where, for whom isn't that an issue? You know, we're all on this continuum to one extent or another. Um, you know, you mentioned two books I just want to bring up. It, I, well, well, let's talk a little bit about actually going back to the idea of adrenal fatigue or HPA imbalance. Um, the James Wilson book and the um, William Jeffries book you mentioned, and we'll, 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 well, I'll, I'll put um, I'll put links to these on, on the podcast. But just talk about using um, uh, treating with cortisol. Sure. So as a body becomes fatigued, and as I mentioned during my my web my teaching this morning, um, we live in a high paced, stressful world. All of us are expected to multitask and to complete maybe more than than our bodies ever ever should um, but uh, it, it can be fulfilling as well uh, but I think it's it's uh, interesting that as somebody pushes themselves like that something has to give and oftentimes that's their adrenal glands their adrenal glands produce DHEA and hydrocortisone and those are the hormones that keep you going during times of stress and eventually the adrenal glands may say, I'm done, I am exhausted, you've, you've put me through enough. And so at that point, uh, it can be helpful to supplement with DHEA and also with a small amount of hydrocortisone. Usually what we see is the hydrocortisone administered to mimic what the body does naturally, which of course is the peak in the morning and then the slow drop throughout the day. Oftentimes people with, with adrenal fatigue have a lower peak or no peak, or if they do have that peak, it drops pretty much immediately from there. And so just kind of evening out or, or mimicking that, that curve can be helpful to provide the person the opportunity to heal. 
And I think that's important to point out too. Uh, the hydrocortisone can help them heal, but it's really their body that needs to do the healing. This is providing them an environment under which they can step back and allow the healing process to begin. It's not necessarily the hydrocortisone itself that provides that healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm. It sounds like a lot of the clinicians that you're working with are using, you know, are are doing a full. They're 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 working with the whole person. They're just they're not just providing symptom relief with hormones. They're doing the underlying work with the with the person. Would you say that that's true? That that has happened in your in your 20 years time? Has there been more of a movement to treat the whole person, or has, has that always been the case? That's, yes, I would say that there has always been, well, especially me being here at a compounding pharmacy where we focus on, on the individual. Uh, however, I would say that, that throughout the years, we're seeing more and more of that from more and different types of, of practitioners. So that's wonderful to see. Yeah, right. It is neat. I know, and you've brought it up a number of times how essential it is. What would be the classic prescription for uh, using, when using hydrocortisone? you know, and, and, and having it track with um, the rhythm of the body? What would that look like? So Dr. Jeffries would recommend five milligrams four times a day. And he, his thought is that you're, you're still having that curve. And so basically you're just lifting that curve a little bit by giving a baseline dose. Um, however, we do see other practitioners maybe doing a 10 milligram in the morning and then a five and then a 2.5, uh, maybe for patients that don't even have that curve because their, their adrenals have been so exhausted. I would say that there's not one way to do it. Okay. I've seen success uh, in, in both, both respects. Now, are those in a, is that in a capsule? Is that the common way that it's delivered or do you ever do it in a suspension? I mean, how, how is hydrocortisone delivered? Most often it would be in the capsule form just because it's easy. You're, you're doing this four times a day. Uh, it's pretty hard for people to, to, administer any dosing four times a day. And so most people do prefer the capsule. If they would prefer an under the tongue route, the nice thing about the capsules is they're, they're gelatin. We also have ve- uh, veggie capsules available, but either one would just dissolve under the tongue and okay. you, could, you could use it that way. So it's, it's nice and easy. Uh, we have seen creams used in the past, but I, I, that's pretty unusual. It's, it's usually by mouth. Okay. Okay. Um, well, Let's see. What other questions do I have for you? Thyroid. I mean, you've got to be doing loads of thyroid. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. So as I mentioned this morning in the teach-in, there are two different routes to go with thyroid. Uh, We have the individual hormones, the T3 and the T4, that we can compound with. And then on the other side, there is porcine thyroid, which is basically taken from the thyroid gland of the pig. The porcine thyroid contains T3 and T4, as well as the other thyroid factors. So it's it's beneficial for for many people that there are other thyroid factors involved. However, the dose can be increased up or down, but the ratio between the T3 and the T4 can't be changed. And so that's why some people do go with the T3 and the T4 in a capsule form. Uh, Say somebody is using 50 micrograms of T4 and, and 15 micrograms of, of T3, and the practitioner decides, well, we need to go up to 20 micrograms of T3. We could make that adjustment when we're using the individual hormones as opposed to the, the porcine-related hormones. Are anybody, I mean, and you, I, well, 
I'm just, I know you've seen what the answer is to this because I've seen it in my practice. It, I mean, some people are sensitive to some of the additional variables in the porcine glandulars. Yes, yes, and that they, is very uh, true. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, all right, and what about, are you, so what about DHEA, pregnenolone, I mean, any other, hormones that you're using pretty routinely? Yes, the, the pregnenolone and the DHEA, I would say are most often used together with the other hormones as okay. kind of a balancing hormone. Uh, perhaps you might see a cream that contains a, a biased, which might be estradiol and estriol and progesterone and testosterone with a little bit of DHEA and pregnenolone thrown in. I would say that that's the most common uh, way that we see it. We do also see DHEA used alone uh, in capsule form or, or cream form. There are studies indicating that that much higher dosing of DHEA may be helpful with certain types of autoimmune disease, specifically lupus. And so sometimes we'll see doses of DHEA 100 or 150, um, but usually those are for pretty specific circumstances. Yeah, right, right. And I do, you know, we do see side effects sometimes. Right, right, definitely. Just like any other hormone, the DHEA, if you're getting too much, can have adverse effects, or if you're getting too little, you're, you're not going to see benefit. There's, there's a sweet spot there for, for each of the hormones. All right, well, we're coming to the close of our time together. It's been really helpful, and I know that there are clinicians and patients, you're just, you know, consumers alike listening and wanting more information, just really wanting to get into prescribing bioidenticals and wanting just the, the nuances of how to talk to our patients about it, how to prescribe the right form, how to track for, you know, symptom resolution or, or excess and you, Women's International can help with all of that. And do you have just comments on, on, on next steps for folks here listening today? Sure, absolutely. I would say get in touch. Just, just give us a call or uh, check out our website. That's a really good place to start. As I mentioned, there's a lot of really good information there about the hormones, about various uh, things that, that involve the hormones uh, regarding conditions and, and whatnot. Uh, so check out our website and uh, when in doubt, give us a call and, and speak with a pharmacist. That's really terrific, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining me on New Frontiers today. And, you know, I can't wait for this legislation to just go through and, you know, you guys are able to just get on with your, with your good work. Um, and I'm sure that we will be talking again soon. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Fitzgerald. Absolutely.